Welcome to the Association Advisor Podcast. We're glad you've joined us for a conversation around best practices, news, and leadership strategies for association professionals. I'm Kelly Clark. And I'm Katie Brown. On today's podcast, Sharon Newport, Director of Operations at DHI, Door Security and Safety Professionals, shares about leading through the lens of change and the benefits to using the power of change leadership to mold your association's culture and programming. She details how leading with curiosity can help you explore the hidden strengths and great ideas of your team while improving your own leadership skills. Sharon also explains that leading with curiosity is a muscle that should be strengthened over time through everyday professional settings such as team meetings, one-on-one conversations, and leadership retreats. It's a humbling skill in that it requires you to check your assumptions about others at the door, along with your expectations for a process or event. But over time, leading with curiosity can be an opportunity to change not just your perspective, your strategy, or your programming, but to change your association's culture for the better. Sharon was once a documentary writer, producer, and actress, and has found many parallels between the structure of the media community and the association community, which she says with her own words is the tribe she never knew she needed. We think you'll love her insights into the power of change leadership. But first, a message from our sponsor, Naylor Association Solutions. For almost 50 years, Naylor has helped build strong trade and professional associations by powering solutions that connect members and earn non-dues revenue. We offer a blend of communication, event, and software solutions that no other company can match. We're Naylor, and we're passionate about helping your association achieve more. Visit our website at www.naylor.com. Sharon Newport is the Director of Operations at DHI, Door Security and Safety Professionals, and is the Vice President of Operations at the Door Security and Safety Foundation. She is an ASAE Diversity Executive Leadership Scholar and a visionary leader who's passionate about working in a mission-driven environment and being an agent for change. A former actress and documentary writer and producer, Sharon embraces change leadership for its power to create collaborative and inclusive cultures, as well as strategic change for an organization. Thanks, Sharon, for joining us today. Um, We'll start off with some questions about leading with curiosity. Tell us what is leading with curiosity and what are some of the benefits of doing so? Thank you for having me. Um, Leading with curiosity, you know, we often find ourselves in a default mode as we're going through our day, and we can find ourselves really pretty easily um, falling into stress reactions or um, just trying to power through. And leading with curiosity is really a tool. Uh, It's a mindfulness tool, I would say, or a technique for a leader or, frankly, anyone who wants to be able to Uh, address the way in which they manage those stressors or those triggers in order to better create um, outcomes in a very specific manner in the course of their day. So it is really a tool for um, modeling self-management as well as creating better outcomes and, frankly, hopefully relaxing into the process of what it takes to do the work on a daily basis. What does leading with curiosity look like for association leaders as they're going about their daily business? Ah, so what does it look like, right? I mean, I I wish we had a camera because I would say it could look like a lot of different things, and I'll just make one up for the sake of the moment and hope that it translates without without videos. So I would say leading with curiosity looks like 
uh, you're in a moment as a leader, and perhaps you're in a board meeting, and the board member, there's a board member who's decided to um, provide some feedback that is uh, less than positive in a way that you're afraid maybe derails the meeting or derails the conversation or maybe feels a little personal, but something that could trigger you, let's say. And that's a, and I illustrate that point because that's a pretty scary moment if you're not really sure, if you didn't see it coming, or if you're not really sure if you can get everyone kind of brought back to uh, the conversation you'd like to have. And instead of diving into the fear or the stress of the moment and really trying to head on what you really fundamentally want to do in that moment is connect with that leader. You know, any member or staff person who is offering feedback that might be less than uh, wonderful is really doing it because they care. And what you want to do is build a connection with that person. So instead of feeling the fear of what it's bringing up and all the things, if you get curious and step back and go, okay, first of all, that really didn't feel so good. And I'm noticing that about myself. And now I'm having a little bit of a moment. But if I'm honest, I really want to connect with this person. I want to know why they feel this way. I, know, I want to know what made them come to these conclusions. And I want to have a conversation. So let me, let me ask more about that. And what you're authentically doing in that moment is calming yourself down and choosing that the connection is more important than the scary thing that was said. And you're choosing the relationship over the stressor or the trigger of the moment. And you can do so by getting curious. And it's, so it's really a path. It is not necessarily the destination. It's a path towards creating um, more of collaboration, better relationship, better relatedness, but also hopefully better outcomes and maybe even more strategic conversations because it's not so much about what they said. It is about creating the connection so that together we can make things better. Yeah, I like what you said about choosing the relationship over choosing to focus on the words they're saying or the fact mm -hmm. that they might have slightly offended you. Um, and that's hard to do in any relationship, whether it's professional or personal. Um, I think that's something that's extremely hard to do and, and probably takes yeah. a lot of practice. Yeah, I, I think, you know, leading with curiosity sounds like a cute, fun phrase, but it can be a, a real there's a muscle that has to get built. And, you know, it's also why I have another kind of cute phrase that I use, but I also think leadership is a lifestyle. And I think a really quality leader has learned positive self-management. And the only way you can do that is if you're willing to do that in your personal space so that when it comes up in the professional space, the muscle is there. I, I think practicing in both spaces is important, but I think to segment that space and only do it when you're at work and not do it in your home um, is maybe just not as effective. And I would say that, you know, as you go about your day, if you're practicing some of these self-management tools, um, it makes it so much easier to navigate it, even when the stressor or the trigger it could be really big or scary, <laughs> you know, and um, you've got to rely on the muscle being there in those moments. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about, in this instance, not separating work and the rest of your life. So maybe not maintaining a work-life balance just in this specific instance so that you can yeah. practice responding to those triggers in a healthy, thoughtful way. Um, yep. and you kind of answered my next question. I was going to say, how could 
how can association leaders become more comfortable with with these triggers and with being vulnerable or heart-centered in the boardroom? It sounds like personal life might be a great place to start practicing this curiosity muscle. Absolutely. You know, if we're honest with ourselves and we start to notice some of those physical and emotional symptoms, like it could be as simple as, you know, somebody said something and then you turn your head and roll your eyes or you took a deep breath and went, oh, you know, or you crossed your arms or you got the butterflies. If we're honest with ourselves, humans do that all day long for one reason or another, right? It might be like traffic. (laughs) It might be, um, the dog walker, it might be some things at work. It could be a lot of things. And so if we're honest, all day long we have opportunities to practice this. And I would say, um, you know, one of the ways in which uh, we could do that in our personal and our professional lives and, um, and start to find that track of vulnerability that isn't so scary but really pretty authentic, you know, we get, we get vulnerable when we're just stressed. When we hear bad feedback, it doesn't necessarily have to be awful, but it can be the place in which we can start to go, okay, that really happened. If I'm honest, that just happened. And so let me pause and start to get a little more curious about what's going on with me and then get curious about how it is that I can, can bridge the gap in this relationship right now or, or bridge the gap in communication right now for the bigger goal. Um, we could probably all sit here and talk about 10,000 opportunities to do that in the course of a day. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I, uh, I like what you talk about um, when you talk about the pause, because I think that we live in an incredibly reactive world where mm-hmm. um, sometimes when you're having that type of conversation or you get some type of negative feedback, the first thing that we naturally want to do is react and say something back. Um, And I really think your whole conversation and idea around the pause is so important, especially now more than ever. I totally agree. That's a great point about the reactivity in the world. I mean, um, not to bang on social media once again, but that is a great reason why we end up regretting some things that are posted or, you know, we, we do live in a world that um, honors reactivity (laughs) and, and honoring the pause is a new choice. And part of what we're talking about here in terms of leading with curiosity is about creating new choices and not being reactive. Um, You know, I think it is a human developmental skill to learn how to go from being reactive to being creative and, and building outcomes rather than just reacting your way into one. And pausing is fundamentally, again, a big tool of how you can get there. And the power in the pause is something I have heard not only in the mindful leadership type of space, but also in um, public speaking and presentations. I mean, it, it is very human when you're hearing someone speak that they pause and you listen closer. There's, there's something powerful to that. So even if you're, you're needing to, you're literally speaking and you're literally having to get someone through either a meeting or a process, and you're in front of people, even in those moments, it's really important to pause and make sure that you're saying something that is getting you to your preferred goal and not just out of reactivity, but it's also taking inventory of yourself 
to make sure that you're coming from your best place in that moment to create the outcome that you seek rather than reacting way through it. So everything you've said so far about leading with curiosity, pausing, focusing on others rather than trying to reconfirm your own position sounds great. But we all know that association executives often wear many hats and they have full yeah. schedules. So yeah. how can association leaders pause and, and indulge in that pause and the idea of being curious about others' ideas when usually they have a million things to do and just not enough time? Right. Well, so in, in my experience, um, number one, it's a choice. And I feel like one of the skills of a leader is that um, we can sometimes, um, can't always do it, and I know I'm sounding, making it sound magical right now, but you can sometimes bend time to your will a little bit because you, there is always an opportunity to pause. There is always room to take a beat. But you have to decide it's important enough to do it. You have to decide that um, the pause is important enough that the outcome is important enough, that your service to your team and the organization and your board is important enough, that you, you took a step back and you reflected, and that you made sure your own stuff is not getting in the way of the best outcome. I think that's a duty of leadership in associations, and, uh, and I would say that you make time for it. Um, the other thing I would say is that, you know, in terms of curiosity about what's going on with your team, I think... If, um, if leaders are pausing and stepping back and making room for that for themselves, they can do that for their team as well. I think, you know, there is a great deal of wisdom and um, opportunity had inside of the team itself. And if you can choose to trust that your team has a wisdom that you don't have because of what they're doing every day versus what you're doing every day, if you don't bring them along, you're not going to be able to bring that wisdom with you. And so sometimes it's just a matter of making some priorities. Sometimes it's a matter of learning to do it. So in fairness, a lot of us who are either leaders or managers or at any level on the org chart and associations can always feel so overwhelmed. Um, but you can, you can make some decisions around that. And I would just invite everyone to consider that while it doesn't mean we won't feel busy, busy, busy for maybe even 12 hours a day, five, six days a week sometimes, um, there are always moments in which you can step back and make sure that those relationships are in a good place and that there's room for that wisdom of your team to come forth, that they always have access to you in that way when it's important, and that you've given yourself the freedom to do the same. Yeah, good point. You, if it's something that you really want, if this is the kind of culture that you want for your team, you'll make the time for it. I couldn't agree more. Yep. Switching gears a little bit, you've told us that you're enthusiastic about strategic change leadership. Tell us what you mean by that. Sure. So in my career evolution, I, um, as I was, you know, coming up, change management became a thing, and change management has been a thing for a long time. And then this term change leadership came into play, and I got – I have never formally, you know, previously had been trained on either one, but I just thought, well, like, what are, what's the difference? And granted, you know, the same thing has changed. The two different words are management leadership. So you could just say, well, one is 
changing through management and one is changing through leadership. But I would say what, what I love about what I've learned on change leadership is that it is the opportunity for the leaders of organizations, and, and I say from that perspective because they're the ones who have the most influence organizational-wide, that it is an opportunity for leaders to not just change um, strategy, to change uh, programs, to look at the membership model, or to look at you know, what event strategies they should be working on, but really to look at culture. And culture has become so important to what it is we're doing in this world and how we work and how we love our work and how we stay connected to our work. I think association professionals, we have a heart for what we do. And there is great power in the change leadership model that allows for culture to be inclusive in the model and for strategy and culture to be tied together. Uh, so one example could be uh, that an organization maybe has a strategic uh, initiative around diversity inclusion. Now that's a program, but that's also a culture. And these are the kinds of things that are changing in our world and in our workplaces these days. And so I get excited about how the purview of culture is evolving uh, at that level and how change leadership can really make a difference in um, associations, because associations, we are in a unique position to impact not only a profession, but also industries. And I think there's great power in that. And it's one of the reasons we're all so loving what we do in association work. Uh, and so I'm, I'm very excited about some of the possibilities as we look towards the future of leadership and some of the ways in which our world is evolving and workplace is evolving. I have a follow-up question for you on that. Um, just in general, it seems to me like organization charts in general seem to be um, less deep and getting more wide, meaning um, the leadership tends to be much closer to the top of the C-suite, if you will. Do you think that change leadership is limited to the C-suite, or do you think that it can come from other places um, who can take charge of change leadership in their organization? That's a great question, and I have a couple of ways in which I would um, I see that. So I would say change leadership does fundamentally need to come from the highest level on the org chart because they're the ones with the power to influence everything. Um, not every position on the org chart can really influence everything the way um, a C-suite might only have one person in but the way the, the leaders of the organization can, whatever that looks like on their org chart. But I would say that leadership can come from anywhere. And, and I also believe that a good leader can identify and respect and hold space for leadership qualities in all levels of staff. I think, you know, we've, I, well, I'll, I'll make the assumption that most of us have worked in organizations where we know someone uh, who never necessarily wants to supervise anybody, never necessarily wants to have any um, growth on the org chart, but is a fantastic leader unto themselves. I think we've all seen that somewhere, whether it was our own workplace or, in, you know, maybe somewhere our parents worked or a company we really, you know, were in, engaged with for some reason. And, so I think leadership needs to be respected at all levels, and change leadership, I think, also respects that 
everyone on that org chart matters when it comes to building change uh, and building cultures and possibility for the organization, strategic or otherwise. Um, so I do think that it has to come from there because of the, frankly, the responsibility and accountability that comes from that angle and the ability to get at everything. But to your point about the changes in org charts, um, I'm not sure if you meant it this way, but what I started to think of is how they're kind of more flat than they used to be. Um, is that where you were going yes. with it? Yes, yeah, definitely. Yeah, they're more flat than they used to be. And I would say that that's also a cultural thing. And I think um, without getting too far into the generational conversation, I think, you know, I'm a Gen Xer. And um, so my, maybe my generation and younger perceives um, or is open to workplaces looking different than um, anyone above my generation. And I am in the generation where we're becoming leaders, and some of us are the ones at even some of the um, younger generations are becoming leaders as well, and they're making org charts flatter. And as long as it works, go for it. I think even, you know, every organization is different. A lot of associations have five people or 10 people or 20 people um, that's very different than those who have 100 or more. Um, and I would say that there is still a leader. There is still someone who's accountable to the board as probably a sole contracted thing. And I would say that their leadership style needs to look different. It probably needs to be a little more collaborative if they're going to make their org chart flatter. And that cultural exchange and even leading with curiosity and self-management becomes so much more critical because you're working elbow to elbow. And um, it's not about having subordinates. It's about having teammates and collaborators. So I would say that's a cultural shift I, too, am seeing in organizations and associations and um, some foundations. And um, it's interesting. I think we, t we play a unique base in the workforce. Um, and I think a lot of associations, we take pride in being slightly different culturally than a lot of the uh, for-profit space. So it's, I think we're in an interesting time in, in our history in that way. You've mentioned that different generations might have different approaches to culture, and that's something that needs to be accounted for when thinking about change through a leadership, through a lens of leadership. Are there any other biases that people should be aware of, any common biases maybe that um, leaders, association leaders should be looking out for when they approach this topic? Oh, goodness. <laughs> we could fill a podcast with that one. <laughs> yes, of course. I mean, um, I think what will always be true is that humans have bias. And the best thing that we can do as humans and as leaders is to get to know ourselves with real honesty and become incredibly mindful of whatever our own biases are. They will vary. And, and whatever those biases are influenced based on our life experience. So this, again, is where the personal and professional will mix. And you need to be mindful what you're bringing into the professional space that could impact your lens or your bias or your willingness to go there in some cases um, and how you need to keep that in mind in order to best serve the organization because it's very possible we all unconsciously, not very possible, it's definitely true <laughs> that we all unconsciously have areas in which we are biased and need to continue to learn to be more mindful of so that we can best serve our organization. 
I think um, culturally there's a lot of conversation going on with diversity, equity, and inclusion. But, it, but that lens varies as well. Um, there are some organizations that are all about women, and so diversity in those organizations are men. So there's a lot of angles that it could look like in associations and nonprofits as well as for-profits and, frankly, in life. And I think, I think we owe it to our organizations to get real clear on what it is we bring to the table good, bad, biased, and otherwise, before we can know how to wield it best for what the organization needs. I would also say that um, even those of us who are working for trade organizations or professional societies that are traditionally one thing, that um, I'm hearing amongst my peers that that one thing, maybe, maybe it was that we were, it was traditionally male, it was traditionally a certain age group, it was a traditionally a certain background, that those traditions are evolving because the world is evolving. And it will be important that we keep our finger on that pulse and respect the needs of all of our members so that we're not using our own bias or preference or comfort zone to wield the organization in a way that does not keep it relevant for the changes that our membership um, businesses are experiencing. I think that's great insight and great feedback there. Now I have um, a little factoid that I want to share with our audience, um, and I'm going to ask you a question related to it. Um, before you kind of got into the career space that you're in now, you were in acting. Um, how did acting play a role in your development of strategic thinking? Fantastic pun there. <laughs> I played a role. Yeah. I didn't do that on purpose. I really didn't. <laughs> but it was so good. Um, it played a big role. So I'll tell you, between becoming an actor and becoming an association executive, I was actually another thing, which was I was actually a documentary television and film producer. And um, in the big through line, really, is that I have always professionally, well, one, let me back up and say, I've always valued um, work. I come from a family where uh, work, work is important. And what you choose to do for a living um, in my family is uh, usually through the lens of how you want to be a part of, of helping people and maybe even bringing about change in the world. Um, my, my parents and my grandparents just have a wonderful legacy of um, not necessarily exceptional professions, but just great heart for being of service. And that led to their professional choices and decisions and even, you know, moments in professional spaces where it was time to stand your ground and you were willing to do so. So I come from a family where there's got these great values. And when I was um, choosing college and choosing my major, I have had an arts background. And what I knew when I was younger is that I was a really good performer and I did some things in the arts. And that was, that was the way in which I thought I was going to bring about um, helping and change and, you know, all the things I was passionate about. And in my mind, it was really also about something pretty specific, which is that I want to play a role in my lifetime to help people learn about themselves and each other through each other, through being able to see each other, through being able to experience each other, whether that creates 
a vulnerability, whether that creates a safety, whether that creates an opportunity for growth. In, in my eyes, nothing but wonderful things can come from that experience. And I want to be a part of facilitating lots of levels of that experience. And as I grow, at first I think I'm doing it because I'm an actor and I'm going to help tell stories. And then I realize, you know, I've got some leadership skills that I'd like to evolve. And that was being supported in going behind the camera and behind the scenes and telling true stories. And uh, in that process, I realized I think it's time to evolve my leadership skills in a new way. I, like many others, stumbled into the association space through the communications department and uh, continued to tell stories. They were true stories. That was what I do and what I know how to do. And I've done communications in lots of different ways in my career, um, like the association space does. Uh, but I was I was evolving my skill set and very quickly was getting opportunities for leadership growth in my organization. And I continue to be very passionate about this. I've studied change leadership and organizational development and uh, starting to evolve what it is I offer and how I offer it. And I continue to be passionate about that and what associations can do on a um, multi-system level. So, you know, organizations are working on professional societies and trades and often have a foundation who serve the public good. I mean, there's so many juicy layers in there that I have been so drawn to and passionate about that really I was evolving my profession as my skill set was growing. And while it might not look like there's a through line from the exterior on the interior of of my spirit, it's had an incredible through line that I just do my very best to, to keep up <laughs> as it as it is one to grow. <laughs> as we all try, for sure. <laughs> Don't we? I mean, <laughs> your desire to grow can blindside you sometimes, so you just do your best to keep up and 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 find your role in this world, right? Right. That is the truth. <laughs> Now, you've said that strategic planning in media production is very similar to strategic planning in associations. How is that so? Yeah. Well, um, strategic planning is strategic planning anywhere you go, and associations do such a fantastic job at honoring um, the value of strategic planning. Um, and, you know, I, I think some of that is because we have so much to manage with our various layers of system that we organize with having boards and um, not just customers and having members and lots of stakeholders. And so I think we just do a great job with it. But one of the things I learned when I got heavily involved in um, strategic planning in the association space and managing our strategic and operational plan at my association is um, I hadn't quite put it together until I was in that space, but I learned this back when I was an actor. Uh, when you when actors are learning how to um, look at the dramatic structure of a script and break it down, um, there's a lot of lenses, actors, producers, directors, there's lots of different ways. But I'll start with, you know, when I was an actor at 18 learning this, uh, I learned that as my character in this script, the writer um, has built in some structure for me to create the path of how to get the character from beginning, middle, to end. And 
one of the ways in which an actor looks at a script, not all actors do it, but one of the ways in which many actors do it is beginning with the premise of saying, what is my super objective is the language that um, I had learned. What is my super objective? And then what is my major objective under that? So my super objective is by the end of the script, I am blah, blah, blah. Um, or I, I need blah, 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 or I've acquired blah, 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 or maybe, maybe the characters died. You know, something, something major has happened by the end of that um, script for that character. But in the process, I need to build strategies and tactics to continue to get my way so that by the end I've, I've achieved that super objective. And actors will use verbs and um, lots of verbs because it's really about action in order to get yourself somewhere. And so I learned it through a really specific lens, and I learned how to break down a script through all of those different perspectives throughout my media production career. And then when I came to Association Strategic Planning, I went, yeah, this is really familiar. <laughs> I mean, there's lots of different language in Strategic Plan and different philosophies on approach and having preferred futures and mission statements and vision statements, but it's, it's similar thinking. Um, you know, it turns out one of my strength finders in my own assessments was strategic thinking. That was one of my number one skills. So um, it was so much more familiar to me, despite the fact that I was in a brand new space, learning all kinds of new things. Um, you know, you could even look at parallels to the structure in media we all are familiar with so much media these days, right? There's executive producers, there's producers, there's directors, there's actors, and those are similar layers to what's going on with an association. Your executive producer is your board of governors. They're the ones who have um, the say-so on your resources. They're the ones that provide the greatest direction as to where you're going. Um, it's really staff that um, leads your way through it, which is what, a director and a producer do. Um, so, you know, there's lots of parallels to it that I just find really fascinating. And um, I'll, I'm going to build a workshop on that sometime because it's a fun game to be able to learn how to wield this <laughs> fun <way> through. <laughs> Maybe there's a Monopoly version of that somewhere I can build. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking it sounds like you found a community you never knew you were missing and that, that you never oh, knew you were, you were a part of from the start. Oh, I love it. You're so right. I, I think association professionals love the premise of community as workers as well as people, you know, we're a part of a community. And when I, when I go to um, ASE's annual convention, we just, we just relish in our community, and you're exactly right. I, this is the tribe I have always wanted to be a part of and didn't know I was missing until I was in it and went, ah, light bulb. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, Sharon, we've got one last question for you before we wrap up. Um, this has kind of turned into a theme for Kelly and I on the Association Advisor podcast, but it's our favorite question across the board to ask. Um, what is your favorite part of your work? You know, my favorite part of anything is people and truthful moments. I just live for just that moment where a light bulb goes off and an aha happens. And whether it's about growing or like solving something or getting to the heart of a matter on something or coming up with a solution on something, I really live for being part of the experience where that truthful 
important aha moment can happen. And I feel like one of my jobs as a leader in life, you know, I take it pretty seriously to um, make leadership a lifestyle is that um, I like being a part of facilitating those moments to happen, not just for me, but for those around me, um, that I can play a role in bringing about, to me, that's change. To me, that's important. If people experience those moments enough, they become important and valued. Um, and so leading with curiosity and change leadership and some of the things that we've talked about today, um, they're just uh, lenses and mechanisms and tools to get at those moments. And I, I live for those moments. That's awesome. That's a good question. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Sharon, for being on our podcast today. I think Katie and I have both learned a lot from you. And we, I love your insight about how the association community mirrors the media community and in terms of its inclusivity and the support everyone lends one another. Um, so thank you for sharing that today. Oh, thank you for having me. This was a wonderful conversation. I will say I, I, I love having these conversations because I feel like I come away learning a whole lot from these kinds of discussions. So thank you for having me today. Absolutely. That was a different, great perspective on leadership development and how to create real and positive progress for your association. And I'm so glad she provided concrete examples of how change leadership can happen in everyday work life. It's not so much surveys or listening in on social media, although those are great ways to get feedback from members, but I think it's more about really sitting down with your members, your team, your board, or whoever is involved with the project and asking, how did this go? What could we have done differently? What did we do well? Um, and asking those kinds of hard questions and really listening to the feedback you get. I think this process builds trust and authenticity, which is something that our generation, the millennial generation, really craves. I totally agree, Kelly. We often get a reputation of hiding behind our smartphones, but in my experience, our peer group wants to have these kind of real conversations with other professionals so that we're prepared for the next level of association leadership that we're stepping into. When we're asked for our feedback or when we're asking others for theirs, we know that we might not see the change we're looking for right away, but having the conversation and being open to changes in the first place is paramount. With the steady beat of tech advancements and shifts in demographics continuing to march forward, I think those who take Sharon's advice to heart and practice flexing their curiosity muscle regularly will inevitably rise to the top of the next generation of C-level executives. Well, that wraps up for today. Do you want to hear a certain topic addressed on this podcast? Send us an email or a tweet. Our email address is associationadvisor at naileronline.com, and our Twitter handle is at associadvisor. That's A-S-S-O-C-A-D-V-I-S-E-R. This podcast is for association professionals like you, so let us know what you want to hear about that'll help you stay informed and always learning something new. That email address again for future podcast suggestions is associationadvisor at naileronline.com. And check out our recent features on nailer.com forward slash association advisor. We've recently had a great conversation with Guillermo Ortiz de Zarate, Chief Information and Innovation Officer for the National Council of Architectural Review Boards and the founder of Lineup, 
a new software platform that helps you create and manage strong, diverse, talent-based teams. The transformation and efficiencies Guillermo and his team help bring to their organization is nothing short of astonishing. In the interview, which is posted on Naylor.com forward slash association advisor, is definitely worth 15 minutes of your lunch break. We've also wrapped up a three-part series about recognizing and letting go of unnecessary governance debt by Jeff DeCania. If you're on a board of directors, and especially if you lead a board of directors, this series is a must-read. Visit Naylor.com forward slash association advisor and find all three articles in the duty of foresight section. Thank you to Naylor Association Solutions for sponsoring this podcast. Check us out at Naylor.com and learn how your association can achieve more with Naylor. Thanks for listening. Until next time.